Good evening, Forest Heights Baptist Church. I'd like to welcome everyone to our evening worship service. We're going to begin tonight by standing and singing, I Sing the Mighty Power of God. Sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad, and built the lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day, the moon shines full at
It's good to see you back tonight. I want to remind you of the prayer emphasis that begins next Sunday for the week of prayer for uh, North American Missions. And uh, it, it's amazing when you look at the statistics they've got inside here. 366 million people in North America, 350 languages. That's pretty incredible. 275 million uh, without the hope of the gospel. To, so out of the 366, 275 million of them are without hope of the gospel. And so I uh, hope you will pick one of these up and be praying for them next week. Well, you know what? You could pick up and, and get double use out of this thing. Start praying this week and practice for praying next week, and you can get your, uh, double your money out of this thing. But I encourage you to pray for them. These missionaries are, are uh, one, of the, one of the things that you realize about so many of them, that, that many of these are, are bivocational. They're not fully funded. Uh, we have uh, many of our North American missionaries are that away. So I hope you'll be praying for them and their resources and give generously as you give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Let's pray. Father, we pray for our search committee tonight. Continue to pray for your wisdom and direction as they seek to make decisions and, and uh, begin this process of searching for a new pastor. I, we pray right now, Father, I do, for the man that will be filling this, this uh, role as pastor at uh, Forest Heights Baptist Church. And Lord, you know exactly who it is, and I pray right now that you'd begin to be prepare his heart. Regardless of when that time frame may be, we just begin praying, Lord, that you would prepare his heart so that when the time comes and that opportunity arises, that he will know this is exactly where he ought to be. So we pray for that wisdom and patience and discernment on the part of the search committee. Lord, we also pray for our many North American missionaries and our efforts all across, our, all across North America to reach the 275 million people who do not know Jesus Christ. Well, ever more and more we are finding that in our own state we find more and more rising numbers of lost people. So Father, I pray that we would be found faithful in supporting them and praying for them and doing everything we can do to possibly get the message out to those who do not know Jesus. Now Lord, speak to us tonight as we worship through song, and as we worship through your word, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All I once held built my
praise service tonight. Let's all stand as we sing, I will wait for you. got your Bibles, turn with me to John's Gospel, the 17th chapter. John's Gospel, the 17th chapter. When I was in high school, I played football. And before any of you make any wise comments, yes, we did have face masks and no, the helmets were not leather. When I was a uh, freshman, and uh, you got to understand that an, our, our town was not a big town, so you didn't really have to try out if you could put on a uniform, you made the team, was basically the criteria for, for our team. But uh, 
as I was starting my freshman year, we, uh, the first game was the only thing that stood between us and an absolutely perfect season we tied the first game zero to zero playing the Vianna Cubs they don't even exist anymore Dooley County I think is who they are now we tied them zero to zero and then we lost the other nine games (laughs) we we would have had a perfect season had we not blown that first uh, game To say that we were a good football team would have been a lie right through my teeth. By my sophomore year, we had improved greatly. By our third game of the season, we had already won one game. We were going into our fourth game of the season. I'll never forget it as long as I live. you got to understand, we had 23 people on our team. And that was a couple of folks that showed up. And uh, if you hit them, they would have fallen down and probably not gotten up ever again. Uh, we didn't hardly have enough people to scrimmage, uh, do a scrimmage at practice. So we, it was a very small team. And our, our average weight of the linemen on our team was about 150 pounds. So the fourth game of the season, we were fixing to run into this team that was, number one, our arch rival. And number two, they were creaming everybody they played. Their linemen averaged about 220. Our linemen were 150. If you don't know anything about football, it is not good to have those kind of numbers. It is hard. They had beaten and scored at least 30, 35 points every game. Their their games were not even close. And their team, their town was about 30 miles from where we lived. And so during the course of that week of preparation, you can imagine the trepidation on our part thinking, oh my goodness, what are we, we're fixing to get steamrolled for sure. And the coach of the other team sent a message to our team that said, after we hit 35, we will call off the horses. I don't care what size you are, when somebody says that kind of stuff to you, it kind of gets under your skin just a tad bit. And so that night rolled around, and I mean, they had probably 35 or 40 players. Our 23 came out uh, onto the field, and I mean, they just eclipsed us. I mean, it was, it was like David and Goliath for sure on the football field. And we get out there, and man alive, we played as a unit. Coach says, I don't... I don't care if you run over anybody, you just run at them and swarm them, just like, you know, just swarm them so that even if they're bigger than you, five of you can take one of them down. And so halftime got there, and lo and behold, we were ahead seven to six. By the end of the game, we won the game 14 to 12. You would have thought we won the Super Bowl. I attribute that all to the fact that two things happened that week. One, that statement by their coach, but also we came together as a team and we said, listen, I don't care what our adversary is like, we are going to win this thing together or we're going to go down together. One of those two things are going to happen. And so uh, good news was uh, we won. 
I know what the next question is. How many more games did you win the rest of the season? About as many as we did that first season. But, uh, but boy, oh boy, we, we played that night as a unit. I tell you that story because I've tried to describe to you a ragtag football team. That's what we were. We were just ragtag. Just a little bunch of little guys out there thinking that we could play football. And when you look at John 17, you've got to think about the fact that Jesus was at the very tail end of his public ministry. He had a ragtag bunch of disciples. No theologically trained people there. Fishermen, tax collectors, all sorts of guys that if you were going to build a foundation, you would have had the same attitude about these disciples as most people did sports-wise about our team. They're not going to win anything. They're certainly not even going to be around. This time next year, they will be gone. And Jesus knew in John 17, Jesus knew the, the entire 17. If you, if you don't know anything about the John 17, it's often called a high priestly prayer. It is that prayer that the entirety of the chapter is his prayer. It's broken down into thirds. Jesus prays first for himself, some things regarding him. Then he prays for his disciples. And then he prays for you. Do you realize that? He prayed for you. And so I got to thinking about what must have been going through the Lord's mind as he began to embark on this prayer thinking, boy, I'm fixing to leave behind my guys. I'm leaving behind the 12, and, and right after this is when Judas does his thing. And what is it that he was going, what was he concerned about? Because whatever he was concerned about is what he was going to be praying about. I want to highlight four things tonight in this. In this. We're, we're not going to look at the entirety of it. We're just going to look at the, the last two-thirds of it, the the prayer about his disciples and the prayer uh, for us. I want you to look at the things he prayed for because what we see him praying for are his concerns. And I think his concerns are the same concerns you ought to have during this time called the interim when you don't have that pastoral leadership that you've had for the last 25 years. In John chapter 17, beginning with verse 13 but now I am coming to you, Jesus says. These things I speak in the world so that they may, may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them away from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Let's pause there for a moment and see kind of the first focus of his prayer. I'm simply going to tag it, separation from the world. Separation from the world and its influence. Jesus says he wants their joy to be experienced, his, his joy for them to have. He had said this in another place in John's gospel where he says, I've come that you might have life and might have it to the full. A full joyous picture here. You see, the, the, he says, I've, I've given you your word. I've given them your word. The word provides the equipment we need to face the world that is constantly trying to take us down. Constantly trying to erode our confidence. He says, I'm going to provide you the equipment you need 
which is the Word. And His Word is His revelation, the truth. Uh, the world represents the enemy, and He says, I am not of the world. The, the world being the world system. Obviously, He was living in the world. And you would think, the disciples were thinking, well, Jesus, if you're leaving, how about you praying for us to be gone too? Take us with you. He says, wait a second. The job is not done. The gospel has not been shared everywhere it needs to be shared. I'm not praying that you are, are to be taken out of this world. I'm praying what? That you keep them away from the evil one. The world presents an enemy for us, and they are about nothing more than opposing us. And the work he prepares you for is, is an example that he gives. He says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. To keep them from evil, the, either of sin or, or the enemy himself. And God's word can provide that strength and stamina we need to face the enemy when he challenges us in this world that we're living in. He knew his disciples were about to, he, he had been in essence their security blanket. He had been the one they had, had been their anchor. He had been the one that had provided them all the instruction and now he knew his days were numbered and what would they do? And he wants to encourage them by praying, Lord I've left the word with them it's almost a picture of how a, a, a boat and water works together. You take those two elements and you put the water in the boat and it doesn't work at all. And, and Jesus is saying, I'm not saying that you put the, uh, water in the boat. I'm saying that you keep the boat afloat. The, the water would represent the sin of this world. You're going to be in the world but not of the world. I'm not going to take you out of the world because... There's still lost people to hear the gospel message, and it's critically important that you stay separated. He prayed for their separation from the evil one. He prayed for their separation from the world. There's a distinction, uh, there's a distinct equipment which a believer uh, uh, deals with, with in the world, the culture, and their context. They're, they're a distinct enemy that we have. Uh, he says, I have given you them your word. The significance is it's the weapon of our warfare against the enemy. Their distinct enemy and the devil, he is out to destroy us. He is out to create division. Understand his tactics have never changed. I have seen churches very susceptible to the, the enemy's tactics within the church during these times of the interim. He is all about casting doubt on God's word. Isn't that what he did in the garden? He's all about creating division among you. Isn't that what he was about in the garden? He's all about trying to tempt you to gain fulfillment from some other source than God. That's exactly what he has always done. That's been his tactics. And he wants to create confusion. So Jesus prays, first of all, that they be separated from the world. Still in the world, not of the world. Deliver from the evil one, but not the world itself. Second thing he prays for here is to, to be sanctified through the word. Separated from the world, sanctified through the word. Verse 17 says, sanctify them in truth. Your word 
is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself so that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus says, sanctify them. Set them apart for your unique purposes. He prays, he says, you sanctify them in truth and your word is truth. It is to sanctify us, to mark off something, to separate it, to set it apart for God's glory. And then he tells them not only to be sanctified by the truth, but he also says, share the truth. You say, well, next, where does that come? Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. He's sending the apostles into the world. He's got the same message for them that he had, the same mission that he had that the word of God might be shared with those. Sent means sent with a commission. The disciples were to carry on the mission that Jesus started. Sanctified through the word, sanctified in the truth, to share the truth and show the truth. He says in verse 19, And for their sakes I sanctify myself so that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Well, what is Jesus talking about sanctifying himself? What is he fixing to do? He's fixing to face the cross, is he not? And the purpose of him coming was to provide a way of salvation that could not be earned any other way than through him. In him sanctifying himself, he's setting him, himself apart to accomplish God's divine purpose. He's saying, I'm being an example to them. I'm showing them that even though it's going to require me my life, I'm going to sanctify myself as an object lesson for them to show them how a person ought to be sanctified. Every, every believer needs to become more and more like Jesus Christ. The more and more we set ourselves apart to be like him, the more and more we set ourselves apart to be used by God, the more we become resembling the Lord Jesus Christ. Every believer needs, every believer's life needs to display the transformation which Christ brings that the world will see. Our life validates those claims. Every believer's example to follow is Jesus. Do what he did, and you should be all right. The third thing he tells us in this passage is he's praying. He's praying for synthesize, be synthesized in the work that you're doing. Synthesize means to combine a number of things into a coherent whole words related to this word synthesize is unity harmonize integrate orchestrate blend and arrange listen to what he prays i'm not asking on behalf of these alone now listen to this very carefully because this impacts you in verse 20 i'm not asking you for to pray on behalf of these alone he's talking about his disciples but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus prays for oneness here. Jesus knows in their predicament of soon to have their leader gone, that the world is going to present a threat, so he prays for them, be separate from that. 
He knows it's going to be critically important for their lives and mission and ministry to be set aside for his purpose, thus for them to be sanctified. And now they need to be working together as a unit, as a team. This ragtag bunch needs to get their act together so that they are in one accord. There is power in oneness. Power in oneness. There's an entreaty for oneness. He says, I'm not asking on behalf of these only, but also for all those who believe in me through their word. You and I are represented in that statement. I, I wish there were some way. Wouldn't it be fascinating to know? <laughs> Wouldn't it be fascinating to know how the gospel message got from the New Testament to our hearing ears? If there was some miraculous way to see that charted on a map to see where it went and who it was and how it came about and this track and that track and it would be incredible. But that's what Jesus is saying he's praying for. For everyone who believes as a result of their word. That includes us. The example of oneness Jesus gives is absolutely you can't get any better than that. Jesus says, as you and I are one, Father, let them be one. Let that be their example. Can you ever imagine the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit sitting around a table going, I disagree with you on that, or I disagree with you on that. Well, I think we ought to take a vote on that. If it's two-thirds vote, we win. Can't imagine that happening. He calls on us, he says, and that they may be all one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they are also in us. He's not only calling for us to be one with each other, we're also called on to be one with him. So that our purpose isn't just our purpose, it's also his purpose. He entreats for oneness, he gives an example of oneness, and there's the expression of oneness. Verse 22 says, The glory which you have given me I have also given to them so that they may be one just as we are one. He repeats it about oneness. He repeats it about oneness. The source of unity is God's glory. The very glory which Christ himself possessed. I've often said the definition of glory is God's revealed presence. Do y'all recall the Mount of Transfiguration? You remember that story? Peter, James, and John up there. And the Bible says about Jesus that his, his garments became whiter than any fuller soap could make it. Any detergent, it would not matter whether it was Clorox or whatever it was, it could not get it any whiter than he was. What was that? It was the glory of God. Have we ever seen any other examples of God's glory in Scripture? <laughs> yes, we do. You can track it all the way back to, to uh, uh, way back into the Old Testament. One of the best examples is, of course, Moses going up on the mountaintop. But also, you remember when they got the, the tabernacle set up and everything on the Day of Atonement? They would offer the sacrifice. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And what would descend? The glory of God. That, that fire, uh, yet just as in Moses' case with the burning bush, the fire was not consumed. 
but it said everyone who was camped around the camp in the tabernacle saw the glory of God. And so as we, you look at this and you see that it's God's expression in him, he's saying, listen, I, I've, the, the glory which you've given me, I've also given to them. As they've seen you exemplified in my life, your presence in my life, now it's going to be transferred to them. Do people really see the glory of God in your life? That's what Jesus prayed for. Five aspects of the unity of the Father and the Son. They were united in motive. They were united in mission. They were united in truth. They were united in holiness. They were united in love. See, glory results in oneness. Oneness reflects the completeness. He says in verse 23, In them and you and in me and, I, and they may be perfected in unity. That doesn't mean perfection. It means complete. There is a complete unity about their existence together. And that completeness is revealed in purpose. So that the world may know that you sent me. You know, the, 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 the apostles needed to be reassured and need to be prayed for because Jesus is fixing to be crucified and they would be just like we would be if our Savior were, if we were present then and we saw him crucified, our hope would evaporate. But once they met the resurrected Lord, they, they knew that, they, that he was sent from God. They knew even before then. And said that you love me and just as you uh, that you love them just as you love me. Jesus decided for the believers to be one. One in purpose, one in message, one in allegiance, one in ministry. Our oneness is displayed by God as we love, have a love for God and a, and a love for people. And the last thing that, that Jesus prays for them is that they would stand as a witness. Look at verse 24 and following stand in the lord's presence father i desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where i am so that they may see my glory which you've given me they're to be with jesus and the assurance that ultimately they will stand in the lord's commission righteous father although the world has not known you Yet I have known you, and these, speaking of the believers, have known that you sent me. They know you're from, that I'm from God. And they're going to tell others that I'm from God. And then he says to stand in their love. And he says, and I have, in verse 26, and I have made, known to, made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. God's names reflect his nature. And one of the nature, uh, one of the aspects of God's nature that's revealed in his name is when it says God is love. God's love is reflected in his son. God's love is reflected in believers. He says, love them with the same love which you loved me. You know, I alluded to Moses just a minute ago, and there's an incredible passage of scripture in Exodus chapter 34. Verse 29 and following, he says, It came about that when Moses was coming down from the Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand, as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because uh, of his speaking with him, speaking of God. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to approach him. 
Then Moses called to them and, and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation and returned to him. And Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded to them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to them about at Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he spoke to the sons of Israel what he had been commanded. The sons of Israel would see the face of Moses. The skin of Moses' face had shone. So Moses put put the veil back over his face until he went to speak with God again. Wouldn't it be incredible? Have you ever met anybody like that? that had such a close relationship to the Lord that there was just a glory about them? Wouldn't it be great if their complaint about you and me was, dude, you got to quit, quit spending so much time with God because we, we can't stand the radiance of your presence. Can't say that I've ever been accused of that. But Jesus was concerned about where, what they were going to be dealing with. And I know what they were probably thinking, and I have a sense from what Jesus was praying for them, that they have been so attached to the physicalness of Jesus, now they were going to have to be introduced to the indwelling Holy Spirit, who's going to come in and dwell. The scripture tells us it's Christ in us, the hope of glory, right? And when the Holy Spirit did come and indwell believers, do you recall what rested upon their heads in Acts chapter 2? It says tongues of fire. What do you think that was? My belief is it's the glory of God. Descending into the hearts and lives of people. The glory of God. So that as Jesus comes into our hearts, he's trying to bridge that gap, help them to not so much depend upon his physicalness but now the spiritual reality of the presence of the holy spirit in our lives and it's the holy spirit that helps us be separate from the world he convicts us of things that should not be in our lives that are there he convicts us of what we ought to do and what we shouldn't be doing he helps to sanctify us as he gives us understanding of the word of god and the truth of god's word He helps us to synthesize together so that as you're filled with the Spirit and I'm filled with the Spirit, there is that sense of oneness that comes together. And then we stand in the power of the Spirit of God so that His glory shines forth through us. There was a Roman theologian from Carthage. His name was Tertullian. You may have heard that name before. He lived between 160 and 225 A.D., He recorded in one of his writings a statement about the early church. I think it kind of captures in one statement what Jesus was praying for these people. He says that what was said about the early Christians, he says, Look, they say how they, Christians, loved one another and how they are ready to die for each other. In essence, Jesus' high priestly prayer was for the church to be one, to be willing to go wherever you're going to go, you go together. I would encourage you as a church, walking these uncertain paths of where is our next pastor going to come from, 
What's that going to be like? What, what do we need to do to prepare for that? That you would be one seeking God's direction. You would be one seeking his leadership. And not allow the enemy to come in and create all kinds of havoc. The high priestly prayer of Jesus is one that is a treasure. It's the longest prayer recorded that Jesus ever prayed. And it's one that has a powerful impact on you and me. Only time recorded that he actually prayed specifically for us. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder of your love for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That Christ in dying did not leave us without a helper, the Holy Spirit. He left him to, to be the one who comes to not only indwell us, but to empower us and to give us direction in our lives. So Lord, use this challenge for this church tonight. That as Jesus prayed for oneness, as Jesus prayed for them to be strong in their trust in him that this world around about us would see the glory of God because of the oneness that people could say like they did in the in Tertullian's day oh how they loved one another and were willing to die for each other oh Lord that you could say that about us for it's in Jesus name I pray amen have this time of commitment we'll sing a hymn and if God speaks to your heart Please, I'll be here at the front to pray with you. Let's all stand. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood sing our closing chorus there are a couple of announcements i want to remind everybody about first of all a week from wednesday we have our family night supper at six o'clock there's a sign-up sheet in the foyer there's also several opportunities for giving there's the annie armstrong easter offering um, as of this morning we had collected fifteen hundred dollars towards the six thousand dollar goal there's also Operation Christmas Child. For the month of February, they're collecting socks, hats, gloves, and scarves. We also have the love offering towards the uh, Holy Land trip that Mike and Debbie was given from the church. If you want to contribute to that, there are envelopes in the back of the chairs. Are there any other announcements I may have missed? All right, if not, let's stand. Let's, well, we're already standing. Let's sing the bond of love. We are one in the bond of love. We are one in the bond. 